Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. It's challenging to one day think that you're a literal God and that you control everything, and then the next day think that you're garbage. It's, it's a whiplash effect in your, your mind and body and spirit that is, is still to this day hard to describe and explain to people. Welcome to the Psychology Podcast. Today we welcome Gabe Howard to the show. Gabe is an award-winning podcast host, author, and sought-after speaker. He hosts the Inside Mental Health Podcast and is the author of Mental Illness is an Asshole and Other Observations. He's been featured in numerous publications, including Bipolar Magazine, WebMD, Healthline.com, and the Stanford Online Medical Journal. Among his many awards, he is the recipient of Mental Health America's Norman Guthrie Award and received a resolution from the governor of Ohio naming him an, quote, everyday hero. In this episode, I talked to Gabe Howard about living with bipolar disorder, an illness that is characterized by emotional highs and emotional lows. Gabe shares what phases of mania and depression are really like and how the sudden shifts feel so jarring. Even though the disorder has its own set of challenges, Gabe is a staunch believer in taking responsibility for his actions. He opens up about his journey of recovery and the coping strategies that have benefited him. We also talk about the common misconceptions about people with bipolar disorder and public figures who may have had this mental illness. We try really hard in this episode to humanize bipolar disorder, and I really appreciate Gabe's honesty and vulnerability throughout this entire chat. So without further ado, I bring you Gabe Howard. Gabe Howard, it is so great to have you on the Psychology Podcast today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, fellow psychology podcaster, host of the podcast Inside Mental Health. Your interest in mental health, is it is it personal? It's very, very personal. I, I live with bipolar disorder, and 
I guess the answer to the question is yes. Yes, it is personal. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, that was a soft uh, softball lobby because I knew today the topic of our conversation today is going to be living with bipolar, and that'll probably be the title of the episode. And we're going to have as real a conversation about this as possible. We're going to talk about the standard stigmas against it, and we're going to talk about some maybe some taboo corners of the mind today <laughs> i love because, it because uh, i'm a big love it yeah well i'm a big believer gabe i'm a big believer in a humanistic approach that that doesn't um only focus on the positive you know i'm really all about integration it looks like you've done a lot of integrative work if, if i'm understanding your journey correctly would you say that's accurate i i, I do think it's accurate it, it's 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 been a long time i've done a lot of work and uh, it wasn't a quick thing so and i'm still learning i, I the, the work is ongoing. That's true. That's true. It never stops. There's. I've only had one person in my whole life tell me that they're 100% self-actualized, but that's only one person. <laughs> it's very hard to find. That person is wrong. I that. don't. I don't even need to meet them. <laughs> <laughs> You're funny. So, uh, in in starting, um, I'm trying to think about what how, what what a good inroad to this would be. When did you start to think maybe you were different than others? Like, was it as, as a kid? You know, in this particular way, you thought, hmm, my thoughts, my cognitions, my actions, maybe are not, maybe there's something going on here. I, I never thought that. If the specific question is, oh. when did I think I was different? I thought I was different my whole life, but I, I didn't think that it was tied back to cognition or disorder or illness or, or anything like that. I just, it truthfully, and this is as sincere as I can be, I thought I was an asshole. I just thought I was an asshole mm. because I couldn't do anything right. I, I couldn't follow instructions. I, I was desperately trying to, and I would for a while. And then I would zag to the left or to the right, depending on whether it was, you know, mania or depression or grandiosity or all the nice little things that come with bipolar disorder. And then when those episodes would be over, I would look backwards and I'd think, well, I'm an asshole. Why did I treat people that way? And then regret would mm. set in. So interesting. But you lived undiagnosed, right, with bipolar for many years? When did you get a formal diagnosis? I got a formal diagnosis when I was 26 years old after being committed to a psychiatric hospital. So that's that's the level of crisis that I needed for anybody to say, wow, something's going on here. Yeah. And you, um, how old are you now? I'm 46. So that was 20 years ago. Man, okay, old. cool. Just to get some sort of, <laughs> you know, idea of, no, I mean, it's amazing how fast time flies. So 26 years old, you kind of reached this breaking point moment, um, although maybe you wouldn't frame it in such a way. I don't want to impose No, I'd, I'd frame it on, in that way. But, it was it was an yeah. absolute okay, okay. breaking point moment. Okay. 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 Excellent. Excellent. I'm all about the person being able to drive their own narrative. So please correct me if, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to be politically correct. I'm just saying I'm trying to be compassionate. I appreciate that. <laughs> so just Thank let me know. You. Yeah. And um, so you had this breaking point moment, and something that really interests me about bipolar, something you kind of uh, alluded to, is when you're going through a mania phase, sort of the after phase, where you kind of are more in a reflective mode, and you're like, almost like, what have I done? <laughs> you know, like, or almost like, you know, and, and I personally can resonate with that to a certain degree. I tend to, if I drink too much coffee, I'll go on a shopping spree on Amazon, and two days later, I'll look around my room at like 10 new boxes and things I don't need. And I'll be like, what have I done? So is this kind of like a just, it's a more of a gradation versus like, you know, I, I guess what I like to do when talking about mental illness is not treat it as though mental illness is 
you know, a special species of human, and then everyone else is normal. Do you know what I mean? I like to say it's probably just, you know, it's all continuum. Would you say that's that's along the lines of a similar continuum, but maybe a little bit more intense and maybe with other domains than just shopping on Amazon? But I do regret it often, you know? So bipolar disorder can best be described as as a, as a spectrum that is just wider than the average person. Right. Most people don't reach suicidal depression where they think that their mom would be happy if they're dead. Uh, and most people don't go up so high, so elevated that they think they're a, a literal god that can accomplish anything and that the, the universe revolves around them. Uh, it's not that you can't be excited, right? Normal people are excited. That's fantastic, right? And it's not that you can't be sad. It's normal to be sad. Uh, and and I think everybody has experienced that. But with bipolar disorder, it it's just wider and you spend more time in different sections. Nobody's ever going to call me calm. Right. Nobody's ever going to say, you know, well, that Gabe, he's as steady as a rock. No, I, I'm always going to be known as sort of the gregarious guy. And that part is mm. good. But when that gregariousness leads me to think that I can jump off a hundred story building and fly like Superman, or when mm. that line of thinking makes me think that, hey, if I died, my mom would be so happy at my funeral because I finally made the right decision. That's when it gets into disordered thinking and that's when it needs intervention. Great. So it sounds like we're really much in agreement that it is a continuum. Yes. And I think framing it in that way allows us to humanize it a little bit more. I mean, I love humanizing mental illness. It's one of my favorite hobbies is humanizing mental illness. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people, what I really want to do is I want to bring people into this conversation, not treat it as though like, oh, we're talking to some human with a special, you know, unique species of human with bipolar disorder. And then it's like the person totally can't relate. You know, I think, you know, we all go through uh, moments where we, you know, again, like with me, if I have too much coffee, it does something to my brain. You know, like there's something about dopamine and that's relevant to this discussion. Dopamine, you know, when you have too much coursing through, (laughs) I I get very excited about the possibilities of everything. You know, it's like, oh, possibilities, possibilities. So um, that's, you know, so the mania stage of, of serious, you know, diagnosed bipolar disorder is is that on steroids to a certain degree where you, you you sort of see possibility everywhere, right? And you sort of, you know, you, unlimited possibility within yourself, but also possibility with every stimuli you encounter. You know, I just, I just see that as dopamine on steroids in, in, to a certain degree. But then the other side, the, 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 the depression side, do you have, tell me about your personal experience. Does it usually follow, have you noticed a cycle? Have you noticed like, like, can you chart it out where you're like, oh, I know if I'm like this today, tomorrow I'm going to be like this. Did you notice a pattern um, like that? Or do you still notice a pattern? Yeah. I didn't notice a pattern before diagnosis. I noticed no pattern. I, 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 I didn't really notice anything. And, and in some ways that's the crippling mm. part of bipolar disorder my parents would see a symptom of bipolar disorder, right? And, and you know, grandiosity, right? Refusing to go to school, staying up for three days in a, in a row, thinking that I know everything. And they think to themselves, okay, well, we've got a teenager that thinks he knows everything, doesn't want to sleep and doesn't want to go to school. So they would punish me. Now, we now know those were symptoms of bipolar disorder and then they would punish me, but here's the part where it gets sticky. I would just naturally cycle into the middle. So in my parents' mind, the punishment was working, but it was just luck. They, they could have done nothing. And and it would have worked. It would make an air quotes. It would have worked. They could have done absolutely nothing. And I would have ended up in the middle or they would punish and punish and punish and punish. And I would just ramp up that behavior because you just never know what direction it's going to go. That was the hardest part for me. It was like an intermittent mood. I, I, I just, I didn't even know what I was going to get when I woke up or when I went to bed. And it, 
it's challenging to one day think that you're a literal God and that you control everything. And then the next day think that you're garbage and that your family will celebrate your death. It's, it's a whiplash effect in your, Mm. your mind and body and spirit that is, is still to this day, hard to describe and explain to people. Mm. That's a really powerful phrase. Have you used that before? The whiplash effect for bipolar? I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It's, it's, it's one of my favorite phrases when I describe bipolar disorder, because I don't think that people think Mm. about that enough. They, they don't think about this idea of going from one mood type to another and, and how that mm. really feels both physically. It does have physical sensations, but it, it just mentally, mentally, how did you have the self-confidence to literally think that you could fly and now you don't have the self-confidence to go to the grocery store and buy groceries or get out of bed? What What is that like? And it's it's a lot. It's a lot. Let's get really nerdy for a second. You know, from an evolutionary perspective, there's a reason why the genes for bipolar uh, remain in the human population. It is quite possible, and I and I don't mean to glamorize it at all with what I'm about to say, but it's quite possible that the things that people can accomplish within that many phase kind of make it worth it from a genome perspective. When you look at the total, you know, the total arc of things, you know, there, I imagine that when you're in that state. Sometimes you can probably, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe there's a certain threshold. Maybe there's like when it's too much, it's obviously you're not being productive. But is there a certain, like, if you view it as a curve, an inverted U shaped curve where too little and too much is not good? Do you think maybe there's a, there's a kind of optimal part of, of, of mania that you're like way more productive than you would be if you didn't have bipolar disorder at all? These are always really tough questions for me to answer because. Uh, Mania, it true mania, everybody agrees that dude is manic, is dangerous. Mm. And it's not productive mm. because, like you said, you've got all these ideas. So you wake up one morning, you're going to start 1,100 companies. And I, I use 1,100 <laughs> both to kind of be funny, but there is nobody in the world yeah. that can simultaneously run 1,100 companies. So what you have is this person that that is spouting out all these ideas that sound really good. And listen, maybe some of them are really good. Uh, but they bounce from idea to idea to idea uh, idea, and you just spread yourself way too thin. And again, nobody can run 1100 companies. And listen, you can use whatever number you want. Nobody can run five companies, three companies, 10 companies. And that's the problem with mania. You don't know when to say no, because no isn't part of your vocabulary anymore. But here's the second thing that I always say about mania. I, I think that sometimes mania gets credit for things that frankly isn't mania. I have experienced mania, and when people see me do really well, you know, they 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 see me on a stage, right? I'm six foot three, two hundred and forty pounds, and I stand on a stage. The spotlight hits me. There's a thousand people in the audience. I'm holding the microphone and I'm speaking. I'm working the crowd. I people are cheering and laughing, and I, I'm a public speaker. It is my job. Every single time I walk off that stage, somebody will say. You harnessed mania up there, didn't you? No, no, I didn't. I didn't harness mania at all. I, I'm just, I'm just really good at my job, and I practiced, and I worked really, really hard. Mick Jagger from yes. the Rolling Stones is not manic. He's just Mick Jagger. Nobody ever accuses him of having mm. mania. So, but they don't believe me. They don't. They're like, no, 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 no. It's that mania that allows him to to really control the crowd like that. 
I can't get away from that persistent rumor. It's not true, but people just don't want to believe it. So mania gets the credit for what's actually my success, which is another way that bipolar disorder is really horrible. I mean, not only is there a 15% death rate in bipolar disorder, but whenever you do something well, people are like, ah, that's your illness. No, it's not. It's me. It was Gabe. I really appreciate you saying that. Um, just to play devil's advocate a second, when Please. you've done something really terrible, are you also equally likely to say, take responsibility and say that was me, Gabe, or do you put that in bipolar? Bipolar disorder may be the cause of something, but it's always my responsibility. So it really doesn't matter what terrible thing I do. It's <laughs> my responsibility. I, I, I want to give an example because the, the audience, for some reason, has trouble grasping this a lot when I talk to people. If I am driving my car and I have a seizure and I run into your car, Scott, you, you get out of the car and you're like, hey, you, oh, wait. And then you see me having a seizure. You're going to understand immediately what happened. And in fact, you're going to, you're going to provide medical care. You're going to call 911. You're going to say that this man is having a seizure and he wrecked into my car. And you're going to hope that I live and do well and get great medical care. And you're going to send me the bill for your car. And most people are like, yeah, that's, that's really reasonable. It just, just because you had a seizure doesn't mean that Scott has to pay for his own damage. But for some reason, when you get to serious and persistent mental illness, bipolar disorder, depression, even alcoholism and substance abuse disorder, there's this tendency in the community to say, well, it wasn't my fault. Therefore, I don't have any responsibility for it. Nothing could be further from the truth. And frankly, it's just not an empowering statement. If you don't have any responsibility for it, then you're just owned by your illness. And bipolar disorder doesn't own me. It gets some space in my brain because there's no cure for it, and there's, but it gets as little as humanly possible. I am in control, not bipolar disorder. And, and, and by, by saying, oh, that's not my fault, it's bipolar, yeah, it wins. I don't like that. I don't like that it ever wins. Yeah, I love that response due to no large part that that's exactly how I would have responded to the question. <laughs> so, <laughs> we're in agreement. He did on not that. coach I, me, a, everyone. I want everybody to know that Scott did not coach me. I, I came up with that on my yeah, own. <laughs> I, I didn't coach you. No, that's correct. I like it because it's, it's definitely, I agree with it. But um, I often like to tell people, you know, I, I don't believe there's such thing as the real self. I don't like the notion of the real self. You know, I think that it can lead us to not taking responsibility for the sides of ourselves that we don't like, you know, and only taking responsibility for the sides we do like. So that's the spirit upon which I asked you that question because I was curious where you were going to go with it. And I'm, I'm pleased you went with it where you went with it. But um, yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And, and I like, it sounds like you have a very healthy attitude and I would say a healthy relationship now with your bipolar side, which is not all of you, which is not all of you. But it seems like you, a lot of the work you've done is changing the relationship to that side. Would you say that's accurate? That, that is absolutely accurate. Uh, understanding what it is and what it's trying to do is the first step toward defeating it. You are right. I, I've got to learn to live with it because there is no cure. And part of my life is always going to be spent thinking about managing, getting ahead of, or, or, or just being aware of bipolar disorder. There's nothing I can do about that. It, it's, the, it's my lot in life. It's the straw that I drew. There, there are worse things, but it's hard to accept that. I, I do understand, and, and I've had a lot of practice. I've had a lot of experience. I'm, I'm 46 years old. When I was 26 years old, it was harder. I always try to give like little graphs, like something that we can really grasp. When I went to the hospital, 100% of my life was controlled by bipolar disorder. And, and now I would say that 10% of my life is controlled by bipolar wow. disorder. And wow. so 
but it was a hard fought 90% uh, along the way, you know, maybe at one point it was 80% was controlled. 90% was controlled. Uh, 50% was controlled. Then, then there's relapse. Relapse is part of recovery. Now hundred percent is controlled again, right? I got up to 50 and I just, you know, I flew too high, but now I have a consistent, and again, these are Gabe's numbers, right? There's no way to measure these. I don't want anybody to think that, you know, I took a test and found out that this is just how I choose to view it. But 90% is a, that's a lot of life that's mine. And uh, considering that I started with a hundred percent, uh, was owned by bipolar and I took back 90, I'm going to take that as a win. And I think where people get in trouble is when they think they have that hundred percent back. Because that means that nobody's watching bipolar disorder anymore. And, and that allows it mm. to operate however it wants unchecked. Yeah, I hear you. Uh, I thought of another question as you were talking, because I'm not ready to completely let you off the hook with my question about when things go wrong, do you blame the bipolar? The only reason why I bring this up is, and this is just playing devil's advocate, in the beginning, you did kind of sound like you were saying, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounded like you were saying, you know, I was wondering why I was being an asshole. And then I realized it was bipolar. So it sounded like you actually were, in fact, blaming bipolar, which contradicted what you said later. I'm just a nerd, and I hate contradictions. So can you no, reconcile no, I, that for I, me? <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So the what I meant to imply is that I thought I was an asshole. I was doing all of these things, and since I didn't oh, have okay. any understanding of what was happening, I just thought, well, I'm an asshole. And to expand out a little, the people around me thought I was an asshole, too. Right. My, my parents would look me dead in the eyes and say, don't do that. And then I would do it. And I think, why did I do that? Well, I didn't have any understanding of, of my pathology, my psychology, my symptomology. I, I didn't know anything. So in my brain, it's like, yeah, why did I do that? And humans, they, we like answers. We want to know why we did stuff. And the only thing that 12 year old, 15 year old, 20 year old, even 25 year old Gabe could come up with is, well, I must have done it because I'm an asshole. It, it, it's a nice little bow and it, it answers the question of why are you behaving this way? It's not a good answer. It's not a reasonable answer. And looking back, I really wish that I would have thought, why am I being an asshole? Like that would have been a great follow-up question, Scott, but I just sort of shrugged it off. Well, I guess I'm an asshole. And then I moved on to the next thing, uh, which may or may not been part of bipolar disorder thinking. Uh, but again, even the parts of bipolar disorder that I can't control, even when the reason is 100% because of bipolar symptoms, it's still my responsibility. I still have to take responsibility, make amends, correct it, and do better, whatever way that looks like. And it can look like so many different things. Cool. Thank you. Your team wrote an email to me and they said, Gabe Howard is, quote, nearly unoffendable. So uh, I, I assumed I assumed we could have a have a really honest conversation today, which is refreshing. I I, I think I am unoffendable, but we'll we will find out. You can ask me. Tell you, talk to your team you about want. that. I don't know why they said nearly. Your team did say nearly, so they, I, you might want to have a talk with them about that. We don't like absolutes uh, uh, around the, okay. uh, the the GabeHoward.com. We really try to stay away from absolutes, but. This might be one of those absolutes, <laughs> but I'm not sure. <laughs> time, time will tell. Let's talk about some areas that, that you've argued we often gloss over when we talk about bipolar. The three areas, hypersexuality, lying, deceit, and anger. So let's start with hypersexuality. Can you explain to me what is hypersexuality? I know what a high sex drive is, but how do you know when it's hyper? 
The first thing, Scott, is obviously you are a doctor and a trained psychologist, so I'm positive that there is a legitimate medical definition, and I am not going to give that. I'm just sort of going to explain what hypersexuality is and when I know that I've gone from high sex drive to uh-oh. A high sex drive is you want to have a lot of sex, and I, and I think that's pe- what people think that hypersexuality is. No, no, no. Hypersexuality mm. is an all-encompassing addiction. You have to have sex. And I, I want to remind your listeners that sex isn't just penis vagina or uh, partner sex. It's sex is also masturbation. And so no matter what you're doing, you're servicing this need to have sex. So for example, in hypersexuality, let's say that I'm actively engaged in intercourse with, with a partner. While I'm doing that, I'm thinking, okay, who am I going to have sex with next? And then as soon as I orgasm, I'm immediately now looking for the next person to have sex with. And if in a short amount of time, which could be 10 minutes, it could be a half an hour, it could be an hour. If I can't find a partner, then then self-stimulation, masturbation, it, it becomes a thing. Everything is in surface to this compulsion to be having sex. It just that's what hypersexuality is. And I I do think that people think that hypersexuality is just, oh, you're, you're horny a lot. No, but you know, being horny is a great thing. <laughs> uh, it's being unable to control it. Honestly, it ruins sex. I like sex. I love sex. Sex is fantastic. But when, when you have this compulsion to do it, it, it's, it's no longer about the joy of sex. It's now about servicing that compulsion or addiction. It's a need. And it, then it's, it's not fun anymore. It, it ruins it. And I, I don't think that people understand that. Hmm. So how has that played out in your own personal life? It's played out in a couple of different ways. First, I, I, I cheated on two partners. Now, I, I take full responsibility for that. The hypersexuality did not help. I, I wanted, when you have this compulsion to constantly have sex, your, your, your spouse, your, your partner, they want to go to work. Uh, they want to do other things. There, there's just there's no matching a hypersexual sex drive unless you find someone else who is also hypersexual. I, you know, maybe they can keep up for a couple of days, but you know, eventually they they've got stuff to do. <laughs> they, they they're like, hey, Gabe, that was a great weekend, but you know, now I'm going to work. Well, now, okay, well, I'm not going to work because I got to service this compulsion, and I and I cheated. I I, I did. I, I found other partners. I hired a lot of sex workers. I masturbated chronically and it, it cost me jobs. It cost me marriages. It, it cost me, it cost me the joy of sex for a period of time. Uh, and, and that's what it looked like. I'm really trying to like dress it up a little bit or maybe give myself some cover or the benefit of the doubt, but no, it, it looked like a yeah. chronically masturbating horn dog and it, not attractive and not something that anyone should want to be. Thank you. Thank you for your honesty. Can you please define chronically with me? What does chronic masturbation look like? What, like what, how many times a day are we talking is chronic? Do, the, how do we know if we've gotten to the chronic stage? <laughs> well, one of the ways that, that I knew it is uh, after orgasm, I would start up again, right? I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even oh. clean up or we're just, we're just, we're just doing it again. I, I, I know that, that that's very, very graphic, but men can do that. Men can well, do that. I, Hypersexuality is refractory is, period. I, refractory. Yeah, it, it really limits that, I, I think. And uh, plus, I was twenty. You know that that certainly helps as well. You know, mm-hmm. I was twenty years old and I was hypersexual. The record that I have, and 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 I I I want to admit to everybody that this was you know 
10 years later, I figured this out, right? I wasn't counting at the time. I didn't have a clicker, but uh, I orgasm 26 times in a day, which is more than one an hour. And uh, on one hand, there, there's like this part of me, this like toxic masculinity part. It's like, yeah, yeah, I had 26 orgasms in one day. Yeah, I did. But listen, it was not an enjoyable day. It was, it was an awful day. And it, I, I, I can clean it up and make it sound awesome. You, you know, I, I can, but it, it's, it's not a good day. I, I use the example of a roller coaster, right? Think of your favorite roller coaster, right? You, you, you get to ride it. And then when you, you, when you pull back into the station, like, Hey, we're closing in a couple hours. You guys want to go again? You don't even have to wait in line. You're like, Oh my God, this is the greatest ever. I get to ride the roller coaster again. But then they keep doing it over. Now you're on the fourth time, the fifth time, the 10th time, the 15th time, the 20th time. And you're thinking, I, I, I just, I just went off, I just went off this fucking roller coaster. And, and nobody will let me off the roller coaster except the nobody is you. You won't let yourself off the roller coaster. And I, I want to remind all of your listeners that I didn't know why. I didn't know why I was doing this. I was just doing it because I had to. And that's also kind of scary. What causes somebody to behave this way? Hmm. Tell me the arc of the journey of this one. So... Did it get better? Are you like, where are you at now with this? Do you only masturbate 12 times a day now? You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> I, the, I have a very high sex drive and I've always had a very high sex drive. And there's it, nothing it, wrong it, with that. In my opinion, there, there isn't. The only thing that's wrong with having a high sex drive is if your partner doesn't have a high sex drive, uh, that can cause some issues. But I, I want to be clear that causing issues and, and infidelity are, are very, very different things. Right. This is where open communication really matters. This is where deciding what you want really helps. One of the biggest things that helps, I just just to throw it out there, is one of the first medications that I was ever put on for bipolar disorder. It had sexual side effects, just like whoa. Uh, and it took that yeah. that that hypersexuality slash high sex drive, you know, that range, and shot it all the way down. And I know this is going to sound funny, but I went from wanting to have multiple orgasms a day to wanting to have one a day. And it, for many people, that sort of, uh, you know, dropping off a significant amount of your sexual desire is bad, but that was very helpful. That was very helpful to get me refocused and, and on my way. There's so much to talk about there in terms of, I, I don't want anybody to hear that sexual side effects and medications are a good thing, uh, because for most people and most of the time, they are not a good thing. But in this particular case, it, it did help get me straight. The next thing that I want to remind the listeners of is hypersexuality is not hundred percent of the time. I, I would be hypersexual for a while and, and then I would, I would drop back down. I was always in the high range, but hypersexuality, it wasn't 24 seven. It was moments. It tracked the mania stages. Like I assume Generally, that when you were yeah. in the depressive swing, you were not as high sex drive. Is that accurate? When I was really depressed, I wasn't anything. I, I wasn't get up and go to the bathroom. I, I just laid there, frankly, trying to will myself to death. God, Gabe, I, I hear you. I hear you. That, that, hit, that hit. That hit. I hear you. Because we haven't talked so much about that other side, have we yet? The depression side. In the depression side, do you, would you ever feel something that would resemble the feeling of dead inside? Yes. It, it, it's... I talk a lot. It's my job. I, I write a lot. I host a lot of podcasts. I answer questions all over the country. I, I'm here right now being as honest as I can. And I struggle to describe 
the emptiness of severe depression. You know, it's like staring into the abyss. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't think that's a, a mm. good phrase because if you're staring into the abyss, you're actively participating in the staring. Well, that, that, that shows you've, you've, you're, you're doing something that, that, that almost sounds fun. Like we, we, we stargaze, you're staring at the stars, staring at the abyss. I mean, do you, do you have an opinion about the abyss? You're, you're aware that there's an abyss there. That almost sounds pleasant. It's worse than that. It's, it's complete nothingness. It's, it's, it's as, it's as nothing as you can get while still being aware to some extent that you're alive, but you just don't want to be. And and the the pain is so intense, but it's not physical pain. It's a, it's a, it's a pain that that's unstoppable. Uh, You you know, you can't take painkillers. This is why people self-medicate with drugs and alcohol, because it's, it's, it's about the only thing that gives you a different sensation. I, I want to be clear. It doesn't help the pain. It just changes the pain from one sensation to another sensation. And that sensation might be more tolerable because, hey, at least it's different. I, I just, I, I lack the words. I just lack the words to describe what this feels like. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's something, there's something really profound here that I'm trying to articulate it seems like there's a deep existential pain when you're in that stage, but it also seems like when you're in the grips of a mania uh, episode, there's a great existential liveness as well. It almost seems like um, they're both, can you get one without the other? Because like in the mania stage, don't you often feel like you're fully alive? Like it's the exact opposite. It, it is the exact opposite. And that's we're 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 right back to my whiplash analogy. To, to, to go from feeling nothing to feeling everything is, uh, it's, it's just a lot. It, it's, it's an incredible amount, but I, I, I want to give a little pushback on the phrase feeling alive. I don't know that I feel alive, uh, in, in the mania. I certainly feel something, but when I think about feeling alive, I at least want to be aware of what's happening around me. One of the things that mania does so well is it changes what you see. The example that I love to use is I got thrown out of a bar once. Here's what I think happened. And as I'm sitting here, Scott, if lie detectors were real and worked, I would pass it because this is what my brain shows me. Went to a bar. There was a local band playing. I jumped up on top of the bar. I started singing. The the crowd was like, oh, this guy is an amazing singer. He's doing way better than the band. So they all turned around and they watched me instead of the band. The band eventually realizing how great I was stopped playing so that they too could gaze in my wonder. They were cheering for me, Gabe, 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 Gabe. And, and then people came over and like, oh my God, you're amazing. And, and they, they walked me out of the bar so, so happy that I was there and that they got to see me. This is what I remember with every fiber of my being. Here's what actually happened. I climbed up on the bar and started screaming. This, of course, alerted security. Eventually, because they couldn't get me down, they made the band stop playing. Everybody who was watching the band turned around to watch this and was screaming all kinds of, you know, get down, motherfucker, get down, asshole, you stupid prick. Uh, But, you know, I didn't I didn't see that. And then eventually security coaxed me off the bar and threw me out, embarrassing me, my family and my friends. Now, listen, I, I do remember that other thing. That's what's in my brain. But you and I both know my version cannot happen. First off, how did the whole crowd know my name? And nobody, nobody can sing louder than a microphoned bar band. That's that's just not even remotely possible. 
none of my story makes sense, but mania convinced me that's what happened. And here's the good thing to your point. I feel like it did. You know how cool it is to be bigger than the band? It's, it's such mm. a great feeling, but it's not a real one. So when we determine, like, did you feel alive? I felt something, but it wasn't true. So what do I do with that? Well, there, there's something, a lot of, a lot of things very profound with that. I, I, I know that when I feel most existentially alive, it's usually in the quieter moments where I'm um, feeling a, a real authentic connection with someone, or I'm watching a beautiful sunset, or I'm in nature. It's usually during the plateau experience, as Abraham Maslow called it, not the peak experience. So what you do, what you do with that is probably you recognize that and recognize that um, it's almost like a, yeah, like a, uh, the devil tempting you <laughs> in a way. But, and I say devil tempting because I really, I'm fascinated with something your team told me. They said at one point you felt like you had a demon inside you or a demon was chasing you. What do you think was going on there? So I had delusions, which to, to explain delusions are you feel that it's true, but you can't see it. So it's not like a hallucination where you can see it or, or hear it. It's, it's even though I never saw the demons, I knew that they were there. I was positive. They were there. Mm. They were always right around the corner, right under the bed. They, they had just left the room. They were for lack of a better word, they were trying to hurt me, but I would always stop them at the last minute. Or if something bad happened, I was positive. They had a hand in it. And it, mm. I, I don't know. It, it, it's like a 1980s spy movie, right? Where, you know, you've got the mark and then the spy is following them and the, the mark keeps turning around, but the spy ducks behind the corner at the last minute. So the mark never actually sees the spy, but the mark is pretty mm. sure they're being followed. That's what it felt like all the time. And, and make no mistake, the, the, the demons were trying to do me harm in the same way that the spy was. Yeah. How did you confront your demons so to speak you know like where like like where are you at right now today do you still feel the demons uh uh do you still feel the hypersexuality like where are you right now i am i am in as close to perfect recovery as that phrase can allow wow. the 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 medication wow. did a really good job of stopping mania the medication did a really good wow. job of halting the demons and once those two things were gone, that allowed me to start working on coping skills to handle anxiety, depression, and, and, and things of that nature, understand suicidality. Also, it allowed me to take a good look at some of my coping skills, right? My coping skills were not healthy. My coping skills were things like sex and food, drugs, alcohol, even, even drama, you know, just get in a fight with somebody and, hey, at least you can spend an afternoon screaming at somebody and you'll feel something. These are coping skills. They're just not good ones. Once I was able to look at all of that thing, all of those things, I could start making much better decisions. So where I am today is I, I've got the medication to help me control the extremes of, of the emotional spectrum that I was unable to control on my own. And then I've got years of, of therapy and practice and experience and coping skills to learn the best way to handle situations that, frankly, I was unable to handle before. And I, I'm really big into examples, Scott. I, I always use the example of, you know, the very first time you get in a car to drive, it is just incredibly overwhelming. But after you learn to drive, you're just, you know, you're, you're just chilling along. You got one hand on the wheel. You don't even realize you're doing half the stuff. You, you know, we're all checking our cell phones, which is dangerous and we should stop it. But at one point we went from terrified to drive and worried that 
something bad was going to happen to so comfortable and secure in our driving, we're checking our cell phones. That's sort of my journey, right? When I first started, I just, I was so terrified of everything and I had to work all the way up to becoming comfortable in my own skin. Now, I, I don't want anybody to hear that I'm perfect. I, I do have setbacks. Some, sometimes a little bit of mania slips in or a little bit of depression slips in or a little bit of hypersexuality slips in or a little bit of grandiosity slips in. The real big difference is I spotted immediately. Whereas before it had mm. to do real damage before I noticed. Mm. And, and that's, that's really the difference. I don't have to wait until the entire house is engulfed in flames to realize that if a couch cushion is on fire, I need to get the fire extinguisher. Well, that's a really good point. Um, I've personally found, um, not to the same degree as you, but I found that uh, a regular mindfulness practice has been essential to me. I think, how has mindfulness played a role in this at all in your life? I, I'm not a big fan of mindfulness, and I, and I always get booed when I say that, and I deserve it. Here's why I deserve I it. I boo you. I'm yeah. not, well, you, you should, based on what I'm about to say next. I'm not a big fan of mindfulness, but I'm absolutely a big plan, a big fan of being aware of your surroundings, your body, your emotions, and focusing on things in order to calm down, which everybody points out to me is in fact mindfulness. I'm like one of those mm. vegetarians that won't admit they're a vegetarian, but won't eat meat. Like that makes you a vegetarian. Nope, nope, not a vegetarian. I just don't eat meat. Right. That makes you a vegetarian. Nope, nope. I won't take the title. I don't know why I don't like the phrase mindfulness because being aware of yourself, being aware of your surroundings, focusing, taking a break and not reacting. And by taking a break, I don't mean a 15 minute break. I mean, you know, somebody does something that makes you mad and, and before the very next nanosecond, I, I would want to jump. And, and now I can take a moment, take a deep breath wait three seconds to respond and the world changes for me. That's a mindfulness technique, but I don't like it. So I say, I don't do it. Like I said, you, you should, you should really throw something at me. It would be very, very fair. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not my style. First of all, I also think that, um, that's your, you know, sort of contrary and personality, which we're not blaming on bipolar. That's just part of who Gabe is um, coming out. Uh, I believe there, there probably is a contrary inside to you. So I hear you. That's, that's cool. Um, it, that, is, that is mindfulness. Um, but I actually think that um, it is important to distinguish, as I often do, between mindfulness meditation and everyday mindfulness. And, you know, I'm a big fan of everyday mindfulness as well, you know, and being able, you know, we're practicing that in this moment. Um, absolutely. Okay. Uh, a couple other things that were, were the scarier realities, um, in addition to hypersexuality, anger, I believe was one and lying deceit. Uh, where are you at with those now? How many times have you lied to me today? <laughs> <laughs> I, I have, I have never lied, uh, to you, Scott. I, I, I assure you Aww. the, I, I want to touch on lying for a moment because people hear lying and the de deceit and they're like, aha, see, I, I knew that people with bipolar disorder were manipulative and dishonest and, and that potentially mm. maybe right. But when you start saying that everybody that's X is Y, you get yourself into trouble. And uh, there's certain things that we would never tolerate. Could you imagine if, if somebody said, well, all women are X people would be like, oh my God, that's so sexist. That's misogynistic. Why would you say that? But yet it exists in society where people say, well, people with bipolar disorder are X. And everybody's like, yeah, that's true. The, the, the lying and deceit is one of them. First off, it is certainly possible 
that they're not lying or being deceitful at all. They're just wrong. There were no demons under my bed. I I can't be more Mm. clear. Demons were not chasing me, but I I told everybody and their brother that I was worried about this, that somebody was following me, that I, I, I solicited help based on this external threat that did not exist. For people who didn't understand what I was going through, they're like, look, he's pretending that he's in danger to elicit sympathy. Can you believe that deceitful liar? Yeah, but, but I didn't know that. The, the demons were very, very real to me. And, and I think that people don't understand that. We do a lot of things to protect ourselves based on our feelings and our perceptions. And perception is reality. And, and I think a lot of times people with bipolar disorder are, are put in this this really small little box that they're being manipulative and lying and being deceitful for one reason and one reason only. And that reason is malice. They're bad. They're doing it on purpose. When you really need to scratch below the surface and see that there is just much more to it. Now, all that said, it's certainly possible. You can, you can live with bipolar disorder and be anything, right? We love to say, hey, do you have bipolar disorder? You can be anything that you want to be. And I'm like, well, what about a con artist? No, 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 no. Bipolar people are good. It's like, well, wait a minute. You said we can be anything. So that by definition mm. encompasses all of the bad things as well. Uh, but, but painting mm. anybody with one single brushstroke is dangerous. But I do hope that the listeners who maybe love somebody with bipolar disorder or don't understand bipolar disorder, stop and think for a moment, hey, is my loved one lying? Are they being deceitful? Or are they just wrong? Because being wrong is a very different flavor than being maliciously lying, deceitful, or manipulative. Yeah, I needed to let that sit for a second. That was a, that's a good quote. All things equal now, knowing everything you know, do you prefer being even keel over ever experiencing a manic episode? Like, would you would you take never experiencing that high if it means that you'll never experience that low. Yeah. Oh, in, in, in an absolute heartbeat, just yes. Like unequivocally. Yes. But I, I want to give pushback on the phrase, even keel. Nobody is going to describe Gabe as even keel. (laughs) I, I, I am loud and I am funny and I am boisterous and I am gregarious and, and I'm all of these things. Right. And so that's the trick. I think that's the trick. So many people with bipolar disorder believe that what therapists and doctors and medication are trying to do is turn them into, you know, boring, monotonous, uh, one-trick ponies that just, hello, my name is Gabe. I am cured from bipolar disorder and I am here to serve. <laughs> I, I just, that, and I understand that part of the treatment, especially in the beginning, if you're being over-medicated or you've got an overzealous therapist or you yourself are being overzealous because of the, the, the pain, frustration, and damage that being untreated may have caused, I can see how people end up there. I want to be very clear. If you end up a boring, monotonous person and you don't want to be a boring, monotonous person, you haven't reached recovery yet. There's still a lot of work to do. You've got to figure out how to get out of that and have more of your personality, as much of your personality as you can safely get in. But you know, mania is not real. Depression's not real. There's a 15% death rate right? You know, we, we love to, we love to talk about like Vincent Van Gogh. Well, he has bipolar disorder and he was a great artist. You know, he's dead, right? Like, like he killed himself. He, he died by suicide. He's no longer here. You can talk about his great arts until, you know, the cows come home, but 
he's not able to create anymore. And his family, they miss him. His friends miss him. That's what bipolar disorder ultimately did to him. Whether or not it helped him create great works is certainly up for a debate. But even if it did, it it still ultimately ended his life. And I, I think we do need to sit with that for a moment and recognize that these symptoms of bipolar disorder are dangerous. And the people who they hurt the most are not around to remind us of that. I don't know how Vincent Van Gogh feels about dying prematurely due to suicide, but I got to figure maybe he feels not good about it, but we'll never know because he's not here. All that's here is the people that can love his art. And that sort of Mm. elevates the romance of some of these things, maybe in a way that, that doesn't serve us as much as we think that it does. Did Vincent Van Gogh, uh, Vincent Van Gogh, did he have, um, did he have bipolar disorder? So that's a tough one. I'm not a big fan of diagnosing people posthumously, but the bipolar community loves to claim them. Uh, So they, we don't know. Uh, Bipolar disorder wasn't a thing back when Van Gogh was alive. You know, it wasn't, wasn't diagnosed. We certainly had like mental conditions, but you know, the DSM didn't exist. So whether or not he actually had bipolar disorder is up for debate because obviously no modern psychiatrist, psychologist, or therapist could evaluate him uh, because, you know, he lived not in our lifetime. But people feel like, you know, he had it and Abraham Lincoln had it, even though, again, these people were never evaluated by modern psychiatry. Do you realize that you have an uncanny physical resemblance to Vincent Van Gogh? I I have been told that more than once. I want everybody to know I have both ears. I mean, it's really uncanny. I mean, just do a Google image search. Um, <laughs> I love it. I'm going to I'm going to be Gabe your... Van Gogh from here on out. That's going to be my my new stage name. <laughs> How do we know you're not uh, Vincent Van Gogh uh, reincarnated? I, I mean, we don't. And and listen, remember, we have people right now who believe the Earth is flat. So I, I think you might have started the next big conspiracy theory. I love it. It's going to be, at least this will get my name out there and hopefully can raise awareness about living with serious and persistent mental illness. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Well, you know, we're definitely not in the business of formally diagnosing public figures. However, when you see Kanye West, what do you see? Do you see some characteristics that are in the similar family as bipolar? Well, Kanye West has come out and said that he has a bipolar diagnosis. So that obviously changes it. We know, but there you go. Yeah. I mean, that's, he was evaluated and, and, and given the diagnosis. So we know that he has it, but in in some ways, uh, Kanye West has a textbook case, but you know, nothing's as simple as a, as a quick answer, right? Here's one of the problems with, with diagnosing bipolar disorder, right? Let's look at mania and grandiosity. If I said to you, the whole world loves me and I am the best there ever was, and I am the greatest. You as a psychologist would think, okay, well, that's kind of grandiose thinking, so maybe Gabe's showing some symptoms. But when Kanye West says it, he can defend it. Uh, He's a multi-platinum artist. His clothing lines have made millions of dollars. Uh, Literally a couple of years ago, I think three or four now, he was sitting in the Oval Office talking to the President of the United States. He has millions of fans all over the world. So is that grandiosity or just fact? And it it does make it difficult, I think, if you are a public figure like Kanye West to decide 
whether or not this person is actually experiencing these symptoms. Now, we we can move on to his personal life, the, the way that he's treated the mother of his children, the 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 behavior that he's exhibited in front of his children, mm. the 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 things that he has said that are uh, you know vaguely threatening and 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 not connected to reality and 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 scary. Those things are are really the bigger clues into Kanye West's illness. And I, I think that this is where him being wealthy and famous is doing him a disservice. I think if mm-hmm. if any ex-husband, father of somebody's children, behaved in the way that Kanye has towards the mother of their children, their their ex-wife, they they would get help. Somebody would say, look, dude, you can't do that. You can't hide in the bushes. You can't threaten people. You're scaring your children. And if, if they weren't arrested, they would certainly be herded in the direction of help. Kanye West isn't being herded in that direction. In fact, mm-hmm. people just sort of watch him as a sideshow. He's he's like a, a a you know a 1920s circus freak show as far as the tabloids and and most of America is concerned. As someone who lives with bipolar disorder, I have a love hate relationship with him. On one hand, he's doing vast amounts of damage. He is absolutely hurting the people around him and members of the public by saying things like, "Well, I don't need medication. I don't need treatment. Bipolar disorder is a gift." That's very yeah. very dangerous. But on a human level, this man is in real pain. And and he's missing an opportunity to watch his children grow up and it, all because he can't get the help and support that he needs for an illness that he did not ask for. And, and, and I imagine he does not want. Yeah. Thank you for answering that question. Um, I want to understand something about the medications you've taken in your life. Are they mood stabilizers? I assume. Yes. They are mood, st- yeah, mood, mood stabilizers. stabilizers, antidepressants, antipsychotics, anti-anxiety. I've I've been on all of them. Okay, you're on a cocktail. You're on a yeah, cocktail. Yeah, I got the cocktail. Cocktail. <laughs> what was the one? Okay, well, we don't need to mention specific things. That's fine. Okay, Gabe, I really want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and being so honest. Your team told me two things about you. Fun facts. One, you hate being called brave, and you hate being called a hero, and and they also said, "quote Ultimately, he is open to anything." I can say that after talking to you today, I agree with that. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> and um, I really enjoyed this conversation today. So thank you for raising awareness about what it's like to live with bipolar disorder. Oh, Scott, thank you. Thank you so much for getting me out to your audience and, and raising the profile and having me on your podcast. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com or on our YouTube page, The Psychology Podcast. We also put up some videos of some episodes on our YouTube page as well, so you'll want to check that out. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, You can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. 
from herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.